We begin part nine today of our study through the book of Joshua. Part nine begins right now. And as I have hopefully emphasized for the previous eight sermons, this story is so focused upon the people taking the land that had been promised to them. And in doing so, it is a reminder of God's faithfulness to his people. Today's story comes on the heels of chapter 6. Joshua, Jericho. And you may remember in chapter 6, there were some very clear instructions that were given to the people. Very, very clear. Crystal clear. Abundantly clear instructions that were given. Go in, wipe out everyone, take nothing for yourselves. The valuables are to be taken and put in the treasury of the Lord. Pretty clear instructions. Wipe out everyone, take nothing for yourself personally, and what valuable items that you recover that goes to the treasury of the Lord. That's it. Joshua's crystal clear about this. His instructions... Leave nothing to question. But something happens. Chapter 7, verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. Not supposed to take anything. He took them. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. He took them. But God is angry at the entire nation at this point. God is angry at the entire nation. Sometimes a nation is represented by the whole. Other times it's represented by one person or vice versa. And and here we see even though it was just one person... Like ripples in a pond, we see how everyone else is affected. And the issue here is much more than just stealing. He stole, took something that wasn't his, that's pretty obvious, but it's much more than that. In fact, the phrase says, they broke faith. You can see it up on the screen. They broke faith. That is the same word in Numbers chapter 5, verse 12 to 13, that is used to describe a wife's adultery, and it begins to paint the issue. It's much more than just theft. It's that they they broke faith. Achan acted in a way that demonstrated just an utter disregard for the covenant relationship between God and Israel. He acted unfaithfully, and Israel, by implication, acted unfaithfully. They were essentially, in a sense, guilty by association here. But let me be really clear. Beyond stealing is that issue of breaking faith. The real crux of the matter, the nuts and the bolts, is that Achan preferred something other than God to God himself. That's the nuts and bolts issue here. Achan 
preferred something other than God to God himself. I suppose all sin could be captured by that statement. In that all sin is idolatry. All sin is a preferring of something other than God to God himself. All sin is saying, screw you, God. Giving God the middle finger. And as vulgar and offensive as that statement or the thought of that statement might be, it is to understand that so is sin. It's vulgar and offensive. Achan has preferred something other than God to God himself. And verse 1 is kind of a foreshadowing slash flashback. Verse 1 occurred back in chapter 6. It just never said that it occurred back in chapter 6. So we as the reader, we know what's going on, but the text is going to shift into another direction where everyone else is clueless. We know the people in this story, we're almost like watching them through, through a lens, through a window. They don't know what's the deal, what's the problem. But there's going to be a massive problem, as we'll see in the next series of verses. Look at verse 2. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avin, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. Verse 3. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, do not have all the people go up, but let uh, about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for there are few. Verse 4, so about 3,000 men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. Didn't work out so well. Verse 5, and the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Sheb Arim and struck them at the descent and the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Joshua sends his men to spy out Ai. They, they go on a reconnaissance mission of sorts. They scout out the city, and they come back and they say, Listen, Joshua, we don't need to send everybody up there to take the city. There's not a whole lot of them. In fact, we can probably accomplish the mission with two to 3,000 men. But that'll probably do the trick. And keep in mind, as of Joshua chapter 4, 13, we know that Israel has at least 40,000 men ready to go to war from the Transjordan tribes alone, from the two and a half tribes alone. And so their recommendation, their battlefield assessment, we need two to 3,000 men to accomplish this, is very, very few. That's, that's what's in their report. They give the report to Joshua. Joshua makes the decision to send 3,000 men. The 3,000 men go, they engage AI, it goes very, very poorly for them, they lose 36 men. 36 Israelites die in this first battle of AI. Now 36 might not sound like a very large number, considering that this is such a small percentage of the 3,000 men that went in this first battle to engage the enemy, really of a very small percentage of the entire military that they have. But 36 men is 36 more men that are recorded dying than in at the Battle of Jericho. 
36 might not sound like a lot, but this is 36 more men that have now died than were recorded dying at the Battle of Jericho. 36 men are not coming home. That's the reality. And everyone is freaking out. They are afraid because this is not supposed to happen. They are confused because this is not supposed to happen. God is supposed to protect them. And now they are very, very scared. So this is what Joshua does. Verse 6, And Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Would that we have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. His statement is reminiscent of the complaint of the Israelites to Moses, their leader. After the exodus. Why would you bring us out of Egypt that we might die here? We would have rather stayed in Egypt. That would have been far better. Joshua? Why? Why? We would have been perfectly content staying on the other side of the Jordan. We had already taken that territory for the two and a half tribes. We could have just split that up between the twelve of us. That would have worked out okay. We had already pacified the enemies. That would have been far better. And now we're going to die. He's upset. This is not how... The story is supposed to happen. What was once so certain is no longer certain at all. This is not supposed to happen. And yet Joshua seems to have a very selective memory. He has a selective memory because a few days, weeks earlier, God did the impossible at Jericho and prior to that, God did the impossible when they crossed the Jordan River. God's already promised Joshua back in chapter 1 when he told him, I'm going to be with you. Just as I was with Moses, I'm going to be with you. I got you. Our memories get kind of selective too, I find. Especially when things don't go our way when we expect things to play out a certain way and we encounter hurdles and setbacks and difficulties and obstacles that disappoint us, that leave us like Joshua bawling our eyes out on the ground. I think that what this shows us here is how much we are like Joshua how much we love, how much we crave security and certainty, and how much we really disdain uncertainty and not knowing what's going to happen next. What's going to happen next? I don't know. We really don't like that. We want to know what's going to happen next. Whether it's the person we're going to marry, or what we're going to do after the school year's over, or what job we're going to find, we, we really want to know what's going to happen. We don't like 
uncertainty whatsoever. And yet the question is begged, has God showed himself to be untrustworthy? Absolutely not. God's been very trustworthy. God's been very faithful. In the days and weeks leading up to this setback at Jericho, at the Jordan, before they even crossed the Jordan, and God's promise to Joshua. One of the things I like to do is I like to keep a book of prayer, a book of prayers. Why? Because like Joshua, I'm guilty of having a selective memory at times. And to be able to go back and say, look at that, April 17th, God answered that prayer right there. Or October 20th, last year, God answered that prayer right there. Got a little check mark, I got the date. Why? Because in those moments, we're not all that different than Joshua. And it has nothing to do with the faithfulness of God. Like Joshua, we are prone to be absolutely wrecked. Absolutely devastated by the slightest hiccup. And that's not to downplay the loss of life. 36 men did not come home after this mission. 36. It's not to downplay or make light of any hardships or any setbacks that we experience. But rather, I think the important thing is that we need to remember that He is still God even in those really scary moments, in those really uncertain moments, in the midst of those setbacks. And He's ultimately the one who is governing them as He does every setback, as He does every obstacle obstacle that we'll deal with this week or in the weeks to come. He's faithful. He's faithful, but like Joshua, oftentimes there we are on the ground bawling our eyes out. I don't understand why this happened. Was it supposed to happen like this? And he's thinking that his life is over, literally. Why? Because just an observation in difficulties, in setbacks, the easy choice, the comfortable one, always seems to be magnified. The easy choice, the comfortable choice, in the midst of our setbacks and difficulties, always seems to be magnified. So right now, his army just got their, they just got their butts handed to them. And he's thinking, we're all going to die. We could stay. It would have been, been way easier if we just stayed. I would have been totally content. We shared that land with the Transjordan tribe. They wouldn't have liked it, but we would have just made it work. Like, been totally content. That would have been the easy choice. We just never should have came across the Jordan in the first place. Understand, I think, that in difficulties, in setbacks, in challenges, the comfortable choice, the easy choice, is always magnified for us. Whether you're Joshua saying, we might as well stay on the other side of the Jordan. Whether you're the Israelites saying, why did you even bother bringing us out of Egypt? We could just stay there. It would have been way easier. But that's not God's plan. God has a plan. God has a plan. Well, Joshua goes on to say this in verse 8. Oh, Lord, what can I say? I got nothing. I have no response. What can I say when Israel has turned their backs before the enemies? That phrase, to turn their backs before their enemies... It is one in which captures, in the original language, the shame and sheer embarrassment of their defeat. It's not just that they got beat. 
It's that they got That's the issue. They were utterly embarrassed. They just they weren't just beat like they got the scoreboard run up on them. That's the issue. And that really is at the crux, it seems, of Joshua's concern. For he says in the very next verse, For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it. And they're going to surround us and they're going to cut us off from the earth. And then, oh, by the way, what are you going to do for your great name? When they get word of how badly we were embarrassed at the first battle of AI, they're going to be like sharks in the water smelling blood, and they are going to come and pounce on us in this weakened state that they believe we're in. And oh, by the way, God, what about your great name? He's concerned that they're going to get annihilated when everyone else hears about this. But he's also concerned about God's reputation. Why? Because this isn't or wouldn't be the first time that other nations have talked garbage, talked smack, chirped them, whatever is in vogue right now, like whatever people say. Like he, that's what he's concerned about. And this isn't anything new because when you go back to chapter 5, verse 3, I believe, chapter 5, verse 9, he references this. Today at Gilgal, which means wheel, I have rolled away the reproaches of Egypt. Today, Israel, I've done that for you, God says. All that smack talk, all that trash they've been talking. Oh, by the way, that Moses had predicted that they would say. Your God's not for you. Look, he's letting you wander in the wilderness. You guys are weak and pathetic, and your God must be too. So that's the basis, right? It's not, it, it has happened before. And so he's saying, God, what about your name? What about your reputation? It's not enough that we're going to all die here. But what are they going to, they're going to say garbage about you. What's going on? And I think what's interesting is that Joshua does not consider the possibility, not even for a moment, that maybe the reason this is happening is because of sin. He doesn't, he, he seems totally oblivious. He doesn't understand. I mean, I think we see a lot of sincerity of Joshua coming through. I don't think he's making this up. I don't think he's being like a crybaby or a whiner. Like he's genuinely upset because he can't even imagine that maybe, just maybe, that sin is the issue. Why would he? He was so clear back in chapter 6. Go in. Take everybody out. Check. Number two, don't take anything. Check. Number three, what valuables we do take goes to God. He was so clear. Like, no one's going to mess this up. I'm sure that's what he thought. There's no possibility that someone in Israel is going to do the opposite of what I tell them. So God finally interrupts. He speaks. As we see in verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Get up, Joshua. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel hath sinned. 
They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. That same phrase that was used for the people of Jericho now being used for them. Devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. So here he finds out what's going on. Still doesn't know all the details, but he finds out someone messed up. Someone or some people have messed up. And I think what we see here, is because you say, man, this is just one guy, and, and there's thousands, hundreds of thousands of Israelites here. And God is, man, he's kind of being tough on them, right? I don't, don't miss the point. It's not the fact that God's being tough harsh, unfair, but rather the fact that his standard of holiness is so high because he is a holy God. You are not as good as you think you are. And he probably is not as holy as you think he is. He is much holier than that. However holy you think he is, however wondrous, however glorious, however beautiful, just times that by infinity and and you'll get close to where you need to be and how you ought to think about him. The, the, the point here, the emphasis here, that God would be so strict is this emphasis on His absolute standard of holiness because He is holy. Like, we are to obey God 100%. Not 99, 100%. Not 98%, 100 Not 97%, 100 I say that because oftentimes we like to justify certain things Perhaps just like Achan. And the threat to Israel is a reminder here. The threat that I'm going to pull my my looking out for you is a reminder of his standard. There's, There's no lowering the standard. Well, the Bible says that's sin. Yeah, but does it really say it's sin? There's a lot of churches today that have lowered that standard, lowered that bar. Bible says it's sin, but is it really? Yes, it is. So, the point here is not whether you think God is fair by indicting everyone because of one man's sin. The point here is that sin has consequences and that sin impacts. The consequences of sin impacts other people. So here's what God tells Joshua. Look at verse 13. Get up. Consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, There are devoted things in your midst O Israel, you cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. Verse 14, In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot, we don't know how he does this, but the tribe that he takes by lot shall come near by clans, and the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. 
Verse 15, and he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed, he has rebelled against the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. It's reminiscent. If you remember back in chapter 3, God says, hey, tell the people to consecrate themselves. Nuts and bolts, when he uses that word consecrate, he is essentially saying, remove anything that needs to be removed. Any garbage, any crap in your life, anything you need to repent of right now, anything you need to take care of, you're just going to clean that up, okay, right now. You need to do this. He says that back in chapter 3, right before they crossed the Jordan River, and you may remember, he says this because for God is going to do amazing, wondrous, marvelous things tomorrow. Like their minds are about to be blown back in chapter 3 in the miracle of the Jordan River crossing. But here, it's an entirely different reason. It is, get your stuff together, consecrate yourselves right now. But unlike chapter 3, where it's because a miracle is about to take place, here it's because there is some serious sin and rebellion that needs to get dealt with. We have a tendency just to sweep sin under the rock. Individually or corporately. I think that's one of the reasons why most people, when they hear about church discipline, they have no idea what it means. Because, well, they give a lot of money to the church, so that's not going to get dealt with. Or he plays golf with the pastor, so that's not going to get dealt with. Or they're buddy-buddy with somebody important, so that's not going to get dealt with. We have a tendency, whether individually or corporately, to make excuses, to justify, to just sweep it away. Nothing's being swept away here at all. It's going to get dealt with right now. So, verse 16. Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe. And the tribe of Judah was taken, 17. And he brought near the clans of Judah. And the clan of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites, man by man. And Zabdi was taken, 18. And he brought near his household, man by man. And Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, he was taken. Then 19. Joshua now sees this guy face to face, eye to eye, and he says this, My son Achan, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Joshua still doesn't have the whole picture. He knows that Achan is somehow in deep, deep trouble. And so he says, tell me exactly what happened. Confess your sin, Achan, and give glory to God. Kind of a a strange phrase here. Give glory to God. Tell me exactly what you've done. To be clear, he is not demanding some type of disengage or uninterested act of worship. He is not commanding that from Achan. When he says in verse 19, Give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me what you've done. He's not advocating or recommending some disengaged or uninterested aspect of worship here that needs to be understood. Rather, that phrase, give glory to God, is, especially I think in lieu of how it's used in John chapter 9, verse 24, is vitally important. I'll paraphrase the story in John's gospel. Jesus heals a man. Heals a man who is blind from birth. Well, the religious leaders find out. They're upset. They have the man come. They say, how 
How is it that you see? Jesus. Okay. Not getting anywhere with him. They get his parents. Is that your son? That's their son. He can see. It would appear so. Has he been blind? Yep. For how long? Since birth. Are you sure? Yep. Is that your son? Are you sure that's your son? Yep. And he's been blind the whole time. Yes. Okay. Well, how is it that he sees? I don't know. He's right there. Ask him. Like, he's old enough. He's not a child. Ask him. Okay. They bring the son back. How is it that you see? I already told you. Jesus. Okay. And then they say this. They say, We know this man Jesus to be a sinner, so tell us what really happened and give glory to God. That's the phrase, right? Give glory to God. Tell us what really happened. Because we know Jesus, who you keep saying healed you, is a sinner. Tell us what really happened. Unlike in John chapter 9... There's a a real need and use for using this phrase, give glory to God and confess what you've done, tell the truth. In John 9, the man was the whole time. Here, he tells Achan because he hasn't been. And the idea is this, by telling the truth, he will be glorifying and honoring God. In confessing what he's said, he will be doing that. And so... He comes clean, verse 20, And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar. Shinar mentioned in Genesis 11:2, It's the place where the men built the Tower of Babel. The point is this is a very expensive piece of clothing. I saw the beautiful cloak from Shinar and the 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them. Right? Not just, we don't just have theft here. It's not like I stole something, but I knew this was God's. I knew this belonged to God's, and I coveted what had already been told to us belonged to God. I coveted it. I took them, and see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent. You go back to my tent, they're under the tent buried in the ground. That's what he says. So Joshua, verse 22, sends sends men back. They run They uncover all these things under his tent. Verse 23, they take all these things, they bring them back to Joshua and the people of Israel. They lay them down before the Lord. And then, and then the story has perhaps one of the saddest endings that I've seen in a long time. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and his daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor, which means trouble. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones and they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. There is some ambiguity as to who is being stoned and who is being burned in the phrase that says in verse 25b, they burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. I think the ESV Study Bible notes that there 
is some ambiguity in the fact that it doesn't explicitly say his family, but most commentators believe it most likely was his family, for you would have no reason to stone inanimate objects. Apparently they stone them, and they burn them, and then they put a pile of rocks over them. It's not just that he stole. It's not just that he coveted. It's not just that he lied about these things. It's not just that he was unfaithful. But at the core heart issue, we see Achan preferring something else to God. The most beautiful, most all-satisfying, most all-enjoying being there is. This this is really, I think, at the core of what C.S. Lewis says. When C.S. Lewis says, we're like kids, the world in these moments, we're like kids playing in the ghetto, making mud pies. And we have no idea what it means to take a holiday out to sea. We are far too easily pleased. It's not that the world struggles with trying to be happy. It's that their desires to be happy are too weak. We're far too easily pleased. He would rather have gold and silver, a fancy piece of clothing, than God, who's more satisfying, more valuable, more enjoyable than anything else. He essentially said, F you, God. He said, that's really offensive. So is our sin. To a holy God, it is offensive. It's rebellion. It's treason. And maybe if we think of it like that, We'd be more careful. He's utterly selfish. He gets 36 of his neighbors killed. 36 men don't come home. He doesn't think about how his consequences are going to affect other people. Not just his neighbors, but his children. He gets them killed. And the saddest thing about this story is had he just waited had he just been patient he could have had those things because they go back in the next chapter in the second battle of ai and unlike in the battle of jericho where god says you can't take anything in the second battle of ai god says you can take things like had he just waited for god had he just been patient Had he just exercised self-control, he could have had the plunder and the treasure and the booty that he so desired more than actually obeying God. That's what just kills me when I read this and my heart just sank in my chest. He could have had it. He's so selfish. So impatient. I gotta have it right now. No, God says no. I gotta have it right now anyways. God says wait. No! Verse 26, And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. And then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor, the Valley of Trouble. It's interesting because after they crossed the River Jordan, they set up some stones to remember what God had done in the miracle of the the Jordan River crossing. Not just what he has done in crossing the Jordan, but who God is. 
And in the same way that those stones are there to this day, as the author of Joshua writes, he makes the note for the reader that so the stones are still there today. When they look at the stones at the banks of the Jordan, they say, yes, that's a reminder of God's faithfulness, of God doing what only God could do, of God just being awesome. And then when they look at the stones on top of Achan's body or his remains, it serves as a reminder that sin has consequences, that sin has consequences and that the consequences of sin affect more than just us. Had he just been patient? Had he just waited? Had he just exercised self-control? But there was a heart issue, I think. And that is that Achan preferred these things to God himself. He preferred these little trinkets to God himself. The stakes are high because God is a holy God who demands our allegiance, our obedience. Not just loving the Lord with our mouth, mouth service, but loving him in our actions is also important. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, Jesus says. Oh, that we might love him that way. As the band comes, I'd like to just pray for us right now. Lord, thank you that you are so holy and you are so good and you are so faithful. Help us, God, in those moments when our our setbacks, our discouragements hit us hard, And our memory becomes very selective and we forget all the times in our lives where you've been so faithful and so good to us. Help us to remember your faithfulness. Help us not to forget your promises. Help us not to forget that you are a good God and you love us. You love your people and that you're for us. But Lord, I pray that we would remember and take sin perhaps more serious today than maybe we've ever taken it before, that we wouldn't make excuses, that we wouldn't rationalize, that we wouldn't justify in seeing the terrible, terrible consequences of Achan's sin and how it affected more than just him, his family and his neighbors. God, help us to kill sin in our lives. Help us to kill it. This is a hard thing. A hard thing that we're asking for. And so we join with St. Augustine as he prayed so many centuries long ago. Lord, command what you will and give what you command. Command what you will, Lord, and give what you command. Enable us to do the things that you've ordered us and instructed us to do. Help us to kill sin and help us to remember that you're good, that you love us, that you're for us, and that you're faithful. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.